Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and my new favourite word is kakistocracy, meaning a system of government that is run by the worst, least qualified and or most unscrupulous citizens. No idea why I'm enjoying that one at the moment. Uh-huh. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and this weekend I had a mega sleep. Hooray! Yay. 13 hours. Shut up. 13 hours. Yeah, I went to bed at 9 o'clock on Friday night and I woke up at 10 o'clock on Saturday morning. That is quite the mega sleep. And I'm Jen Offord and I thought hurricanes all had women's names. No. No. The ones that go round in one direction have a woman's name and the ones that go round in the other direction have men's names. Well, Lorenzo was quite the surprise for me when I heard the news this morning. So this is all brand new information. Wowzers. Later on, I catch up with author Liz Hyder to talk about her brilliant debut fiction, Bearmouth. A note to add to the bit where we whisper, it's not official yet. It is official now. Hooray. Hooray. We talked to Lucy de Cruz about the current situation regarding reproductive rights in Argentina and her new documentary, My Body, Their Choice. I'm talking athletics, among other things, in Jenny Off the Blocks. And there are big moves in nail polish technology as Dunleavy does dystopia watches Total Recall. I've never even been to Mars. I quite like to go to Mars because first, plagiarism, racism and Francoism. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph where three ex-barmaids lay down the law on what's currently what. Speaking of Lady Howe, shall we start with the good news and then just let it all go downhill from there? Okay. Well, last week, the President of the Supreme Court, ex-barmaid and brooch wearer extraordinaire, certainly captured the public imagination. So much so that when an Uxbridge company, that's Boris Johnson's constituency, by the way, if you didn't know that, the irony, rushed out a Lady Howe-inspired T-shirt to market with a third of profits going to the charity shelter. By Friday... So that's already like five days ago. Balcony Shirts had sold 6,500 of the Spider Brooch-inspired tops and raised more than £15,000 to help the homeless charity, which is about as good as the Brexit news gets, I'm afraid. But it is good news nonetheless. Yeah, they've totally sold mm-hmm. out. You can't order them now. And I saw the lovely news that Lady Hale is indeed getting a T-shirt. Aww. I bought a T-shirt and I got a message from Sainsbury's that it was there to collect, but I forgot to go and get it. Rats. Okay, I'm just going to revel in that momentary glow of joy just for a second longer. (sighs) Right, back to the horror show. Let's start with this quote. I don't think anyone really knows. Does anyone want to guess who said it and what it refers to? How long is a piece of string? (laughs) Is it one of Boris Johnson's children in answer to the question, how many brothers and sisters do you have? (laughs) They are both Excellent answers. But, in fact, it was our Chancellor, Sajid Javid, who has been pretty candid about Tory ignorance regarding how much crashing out of the EU will cost us, not disputing his own watchdog's warning of a £30 billion a year hit, adding, I've never pretended that if you leave without a deal, it won't be challenging. I don't think anyone really knows is, of course, a catch-all answer to British politics right now, moving so fast it's hard to keep up and yet going fucking nowhere. Let's have a super quick recap because we've been away for a couple of weeks. I'm going to do it in the style of bullseye because why the fuck not? In one, last Tuesday, Boris Johnson's decision to prorogue Parliament was declared unlawful by the Supreme Court. In two, 
Last Wednesday, Parliament was recalled and MPs went back to work. In three, the government plunged straight into a full-throated attack on opposition MPs, with Attorney General Geoffrey Cox calling Parliament dead with no moral right to sit. While everyone looked surprised, he could even say the word moral with a straight, albeit beetroot, face. In four, yet another Labour Party meltdown, plus a change. And Bully's special prize... Many MPs, mainly women, shared stories of death and rape threats that specifically used Boris Johnson's rhetoric of traitors, betraying the country, and which the Prime Minister dismissed as humbug and then said he felt bullied over his use of language. Classic gaslighting there. Oh, and Brendan O'Neill said that people should be rioting in the streets. He said that live on air. That's a normal thing to do now, apparently. So, to summarise what's going on... I don't think anyone really knows. I don't think I knew Sajid David was the Chancellor. Uh. <laughs> Can I just say, keeping in the style of Bullseye, in this game, in Parliament Bullseye, you do get something for two in a bed. You get a £100,000 grant to spend on your new technology company. <laughs> More on that later. Transport Minister and sentient wooden spoon Grant Shapps was looking daft again last week after The Guardian pointed out some similarities between his response to the collapse of Thomas Cook and that of predecessor Chris Grayling to Monarch Airlines. Well, if ever there was a colleague to emulate. And when we say statements were similar, we mean the speech is almost identical, simply swapping the company's names, both referred to as an iconic British brand, and the odd stat. And that's right down to having been in contact with members whose constituencies have been hardest hit by these job losses. Good to know. Thanks, guys. Shapps responded to criticism on Twitter, stating he had not been aware that some of these words had been used before, reiterating that he stood by them and will follow through by delivering airline administration reform. And in case you can't hear it, that's an inappropriate exclamation mark at the end, so perhaps we'll leave the writing to Chris, shall we? I quite like the use of the word follow through and all its implications just in that (laughs) sentence. (laughs) As if last Tuesday wasn't exciting enough with the Supreme Court ruling against Boris, over in the US there was finally movement on the question of whether a man accused of racism, multiple sexual assaults and being a gibbering mess is indeed the right person to be in charge. After a cracking speech by 79-year-old representative and longtime civil rights campaigner John Lewis, whose work it seems is never done, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, opened an impeachment inquiry. There's so much to say on this, there's barely time, but if you have questions, here are some answers for you. No, this does not mean that Trump is done for. Yes, he is likely to do something to make it worse as the weeks go on. And no, I don't know why it took a phone call to the PM of the Ukraine about former Veep and potential 2020 election rival Joe Biden rather than, you know, keeping babies in cages to get them to spring into action. It's just so disheartening that it might not go anywhere. Well, I mean, the problem they've got, if you want a little lesson in how impeachment works, is the representatives will probably vote to impeach him. Then basically you get a trial, which is done in front of the Senate, and the Senate will vote on whether or not he is impeached. And the Senate is currently predominantly Republican. So it will take Republicans turning their back on their president to make this happen. Now, as we've learned over here, you know, there are good Tories. So maybe, or there were good Tories, they've all left now. Maybe that will happen over there. But if they haven't done it by now, this line in the sand is not a line in the sand to them, is it? 
makes me sick to my stomach seeing people putting party over the country. Mm. And not even on a Brexit note, just defending anything that Mm. that moron in power, and that goes for the UK and the US, has to say. Even when it's then proven to be a lie, just sort of doubling down. Oh, Maria Miller, I am absolutely looking at you. But it's it's just horrific. Honestly, Friday I was proper full on depressed by the state of the country that we were living in and the state of our media who, I mean, I can't even, I had a bit of a rant on Twitter about this, I can't even get started about how disappointed I am in the BBC over the last couple of days. Well, here we go. Another huge story is that racism is back up for debate and that is according to the BBC. Yet we were surprised and appalled too. Auntie found herself in quite the shitstorm after reprimanding presenter Naga Munchetti for saying that remarks by Donald Trump were, quote, embedded in racism. Munchetti was found to have been in breach of BBC editorial guidelines when she said on air that Trump's call for a group of female Democrats to, quote, go back to their own countries was embedded in racism. Uh, yeah? In a fuller explanation of the original finding, the BBC said that by commenting on Trump's possible motive and the potential consequences of his statement, Munchetti had gone beyond what the guidelines allow for. In a letter to the complainant, the BBC added that audiences should not be able to tell the opinions of its journalists on matters of public policy. Okay, so let's go to the excellent Carrie Gracie, no stranger to the BBC shit fuckery, who commented on Twitter... BBC editorial guidelines are important, but must apply equally. It can't reprimand a woman of colour, but smile on opinionating white men. A risk of double standards on big questions of race and gender. BBC, sort yourself out. An open letter to the BBC signed by Sir Lenny Henry, Jeannie Yashir, Afwa Hirsch and dozens of others said to require journalists of all ethnicities and races to endorse racism as a legitimate opinion is an abrogation of responsibility of the most serious nature. Do you want to know where we're at? Even grade-A prong Piers Morgan has come to Manchetti's defence, calling the BBC's decision sinister. People, we are well and truly through not just the looking glass, but an entire house of mirrors. So in news that will probably shock no one, the British Heart Foundation announced this week that inequalities in heart attack care were leading to unnecessary deaths in women. A report published by the charity on Monday said that over a period of 10 years, more than 8,000 said unnecessary deaths occurred in women in England and Wales due to inequalities in diagnosis, treatment and aftercare, adding that unconscious biases are limiting the survival chances of women. According to the report, a woman is 50% more likely than a man to receive the wrong initial diagnosis after suffering a heart attack, is less likely to receive potentially life-saving treatments and is also less likely to be prescribed preventative medications for future incidents following an initial heart attack. Dr Sonia Babu Narayan, Associate Medical Director of the British Heart Foundation, said of the findings, women are dying needlessly because heart attacks are often seen as a man's disease and women don't receive the same standard of treatment as men. She added that the report revealed inequalities at every stage of a woman's medical journey and although complex to dissect, they suggest unconscious biases are limiting the survival chances of women. Hang on, let me just put my surprise face on. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> Women not taken seriously by medical profession. Shut up. The pain gap, the pleasure gap, the pay gap. Well done. So, tempestuous as we've made last week sound, you might have missed another big story. And that was that a court has ruled that the body of the Spanish dictator Franco is to be removed from his tomb 
in the state mausoleum and placed in a municipal cemetery, ending decades of debate on the topic. Carmen Calvo, Spain's acting vice president, said the government would get the job done as soon as possible, adding, This is good news for the Spanish people, out of respect for the victims on both sides, so that our coexistence can be fully free and ethical. Coexistence. That sounds really fucking nice, doesn't it? Mm. Our government might do well to learn something from that. And if not, maybe it can take another lesson from it. History doesn't always remember us how we want it to. Alexa, have you had it with this motherfucking accent on this motherfucking (laughs) device? Terra just got a shitload more fun, and I say Terra because it is intrinsically terrifying. As Amazon announced last week, its virtual assistant slash living room Snoop will soon have the capability to mimic voices of various celebrities. So, for the princely sum of around 80p, you too could have the likes of Samuel L. Jackson virtually that is, in your living room, carrying out menial web-based tasks and harvesting information about your life. Oh, God. According to the retail-slash-technology giant, is that a fair description? I don't really know what we're calling them these days. They said the voices would be achieved using a combination of neural text-to-speak engine-mimicking accents, no, me either, and recordings provided by the celebrities themselves. In the case of Samuel L, customers will be able to choose whether or not they get swears. <laughs> the announcement came alongside that of a whole range of new Amazon products, including pet tracking devices and glasses that vibrate to provide notifications. Jeff Blaber, a market analyst at CCS Insight, told the BBC, this avalanche of new products underlines Amazon's desire to extend Alexa's reach to every part of people's lives. I mean, it's an inside number nine in the making, isn't it? Well, that's it? terrifying, isn't yeah. it? I did it is, see some yeah. suggestions of people making of who, who they would like to have in their house. Sarah Phelps was saying Kathy Burke, which mm. I think would be great. But I kind of tempted by the idea of Guilford Gottfried. And he talks in this really crazy high-pitched voice. Right on cue... My Google on my phone was just like, what can we do to help you? You've literally touched nothing. It's in flight mode. Oh, there's a big surprise. I think I'm going to have a heart attack and die from that surprise. Terror. The robots, they're coming. Nosy bastards. Okay, so this um, it's a news story. And apparently this is news because some researchers still haven't met a cat they like. But researchers at Oregon State University in the US have found that, like children and dogs, cats do form emotional attachments to their humans. Well, given that my furry boy likes to wash my hair, chirrups when I come home, and on occasion purrs with such intensity that I actually worry for his health, I'm boggled as to why this is always a surprise to people, but you know, there you go. The attachments include something known as secure attachment, wherein the presence of a cat's human helps them to feel secure, calm, safe, and comfortable enough to explore their environment. Aww, cats are great. Mm. I did watch a thing once where um, they put an owner and their pet in a room and then they made a loud noise. And with dogs, absolutely 100% of dogs ran towards their owner in a either I'm going to protect you or please protect me mm. kind of way. And 100% of cats just fucked off. <laughs> they were like, you're on your own, mate. <laughs> More news next week. Oh, God. I don't think I can cope. (laughs) More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. 
It's that time of the week where I was tempted to just say Boris Johnson and leave it at that. Because seriously, if the behaviour of our Prime Minister, and yes, I do die inside a little every time I have to say that, towards women hasn't already been well documented as so misogynistic that the word misogynist doesn't seem to quite cover it, it seems not a day goes by without the ante being upped. Anyway, following days of revelations about his relationship with American tech entrepreneur Jennifer Accruri, whose company received a public grant, a phrase I'm going to assume Johnson also uses to describe his winky, Johnson was accused of grabbing the thighs of two women at a lunch while he was editor of The Spectator magazine. Sunday Times journalist Charlotte Edwards claims that at a private lunch in 1999, Johnson groped her under a table, grabbing enough inner flesh beneath his fingers to make her sit upright. She also alleges he did the same to another woman at the same event. The Prime Minister is said to be furious at the claim, which Downing Street insiders have privately described as bollocks and nonsense, because obviously. And given his pristine track record when it comes to telling the truth, we wholeheartedly believe him. Because, oh, wait. What are you doing on November the 18th? I'm thinking of, and I want you to brace yourself for this, Hannah, but I am thinking... Of talking to some men. Ah, wow. Any yeah. men in particular? Handpicked three. Craig Parkinson, that's right. He of unbuttoning and buttoning his jacket on Line of Duty and also the amazing Two Shot podcast. Nish Kumar, he of the Mash Report and general funniness. And Mr. Joe Lysett, he of hilarity on Sue's whenever he is in a room. And fantastic. What I can only describe as blouses. He does have incredible blouses. What do you think the chances of getting all those people in the same room at the same time are, Mickey? I'm glad you've asked, Jen, because I've been working very hard to make this happen alongside my <laughs> lovely colleagues, Jen and Hannah, who you may know well. And uh, it is going to happen at King's Place on November the 18th, which is International Men's Day Eve. It's going to be mint. Get your ticket. Yeah, if you want to get to www.standardissuepodcast.com, you will find details of that and our many other live shows. I love that you always say the www. I know. I, I interviewed Sam Avery, another man, once, and he said it, We're and everywhere. it just made me laugh. So I like to put it in. Hi. Jen and I are here in the studio with Lucy DeCruz, the director and producer of a new film, My Body, Their Choice. Thank you for joining us, which is about the fight for women's bodily autonomy in Argentina. I mean, for us, another day, another country treating their women (laughs) unbelievably badly. Mm. Maybe you could start by explaining to us what the current situation is in Argentina. So it's highly illegal in Argentina. Technically, the law there is actually the same as the UK. It's just the way that they perceive it. So in the UK, you can get an abortion, but you have to go through two doctors, I think, to get it and be signed off as, um, you know, having a, a specific reason to have it done. You can't sort of get the abortion pill and then go and take it yourself. That's still illegal here. But in Argentina, it's just seen very differently. So even if you're in danger, your health is in danger, it's still very difficult to get an abortion. So, or even if in the cases of rape and things like that, it's still highly illegal to get an abortion. I think there have been cases, certain cases where, for example, a 12-year-old girl was raped and um, was able to get an abortion legally, but they held a sort of ceremony in the hospital for the fetus and not for the 12-year-old girl who had been raped. Um, So that's the situation currently. Last year, they had a huge Senate vote, which caused a massive march in the streets of Buenos Aires to try and change this law. And in the end, it ended up being 38 to 31 voted no to, to keep the law as it is. 
So that's sort of the current situation as it is. There's lots of back alley abortions happening. People using um, things like knitting needles, stalks of parsley to create an infection, all sorts going on. So it's still happening anyway. It's just that obviously making it legal would provide somewhere yeah. safe um, to go and to have the healthcare needed for. Yeah, I mean, ab- ab- making abortion illegal doesn't stop abortion. It just That's makes it more dangerous. I exactly. mean, we've said that so many yeah, times. There's on no there. such thing as no abortion. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask you what drew you to this story in Argentina? So I was living there last year and I just got back from a big project overseas and I had heard about Andrew through the expat circle and I'd really wanted to make something because I knew the march, the, I knew the vote, the Senate vote was coming up and there was going to be a huge march in the streets. So I really wanted to... That's document it somehow. Andrew, your co-creator. Andrew Andrew Gold is the yeah. yeah. He's also a producer and presented presented the documentary as well. So he's on camera in the documentaries. Um, sort of a bit of a Louis Theroux style documentary, and he goes to speak to the crazy baby lady who's in it several times throughout the film, and also interviews an Irish girl who who had a horrendous illegal back alley abortion there before the vote changed in Ireland. She's a resident there, but she wasn't able to go home to have the abortion. So. She ended up having this horrible abortion in Buenos Aires. So I met him through the expat circle and we just decided to get together and make make this film together. Is there something unique about the Argentina situation or when you see stuff about Ireland, when you see stuff about Northern Ireland, when you see what's happening in America, do you see the same tropes repeated in the arguments there? Yeah, I do think it is quite similar, particularly with Ireland, I think, because they're both very Catholic countries. And I think that has a lot to do with it. So I think because a lot of people are sort of stuck in that kind of era of, you know, not having sex education at school, not having that choice, basically, because it's kind of a religious, religious values that they don't want to change. But I don't think they see it from the other side that as you say, it's going to happen anyway. Abortions are still going to happen anyway. It's not actually going to change anything. All it's going to do is save lives from you know, people that are doing these back alley and mm. home abortions and then suffering from them or, you know, in, in some cases dying from them. So I do think it's quite similar. I think the slight difference with Argentina is it's very male dominated and a lot of South America is as well. And a lot of them, the people in the Senate are middle aged men. So I don't think that helps. So it's the, it's the younger generations that are kind of coming in and trying yeah. to trying to change things. That said, one of the most prominent faces in the argument, I watched from the trailer you sent me, I was introduced to crazy baby lady, obviously a woman, and a very prominent force in this argument. She is quite something, isn't she? How did you come across her? Yeah, so she's called in Spanish La Loca de de Bebitos, La Loca de Bebitos, which literally translates as the crazy baby lady. She's kind of very prominent in Argentina. She's all over the press. She's constantly posting videos on YouTube. She's got a huge following on Facebook and it kind of a, everyone knows who she is, basically. So we'd sort of seen her and read about her in various um, media platforms and decided to get in touch with her because we thought it was important to get inside her head and see that side of things as well to try and kind of understand in some way like where those views are coming mm. from and also to try and bridge the gap in the country with, you know, why there's two such extreme views. So can I ask for the sake of um, me because I've not seen the trailer and and anyone else listening to it what does she represent does she represent the the pro-life 
side of things. Yeah, so she's yeah anti-choice, pro-life. Yeah. There's a basically a blue side and a green side. So the green side is pro-choice, and the blue side is pro-life, or as we prefer to call it, anti-choice. Yeah, that's probably um, a better way of. She's kind of got a huge following, and she's very passionate about her views. And she goes around with these tiny fetuses to schools, um, to lots Real of different fetuses. events. No plastic ones. Good. Um, that's like, that's, uh, no, God, yeah. thankfully not. Yeah, yeah. Um, but she's got a huge collection of these plastic fetuses in all yeah. different sizes, and she goes around to schools and to different events and campaigns trying to prevent people from having abortions, basically. She kind of seems like Katie Hopkins, weirdly. Although Katie Hopkins (laughs) isn't particularly vocal on abortion. That sort of, you know, agent provocateur role. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Although that's not that different to... um, Well, the thing Mick used to talk about, about how she went to Catholic school and they gave them, like, little... In this country, and they'd give them, like, little badges with, like, little footprints on like mm-hmm. they're supposed to be like little baby footprints yeah. and she'd say like you know you wanted to wear them because they were cute basically you obviously didn't understand the connotations of them. so it's not that different to stuff that brainwashing isn't it mm. so in the states they have um they have these people who go around basically picking up people who are going to have abortions and they take them away to like under the pretense that they're gonna like mm-hmm help them make a choice about what they want to do do they have things like that in argentina as well yeah so we actually did some undercover filming um at one of these clinics in argentina we'd found out about them through various means and we'd actually spoken to um the irish girl who had a horrendous back alley abortion she'd actually ended up at one of these clinics before she'd managed to get her abortion um and we managed to to contact them i pretended that i was pregnant that i needed help and they told me on the phone they could help me get the abortion pill they told me to come in they would help me i went with a pregnant urine sample and um pretended that i was pregnant and they immediately sat down with a leaflet full of untrue facts about um abortion saying that you know, you'll be depressed afterwards, you'll have problems, you won't be able to ever get pregnant again, it can lead to cancer, all these ridiculous things, they make you watch a video, um, which basically just all tries to put you off having an abortion. And when you first arrive, you're like in a waiting room, and there's a child playing on the floor, who they keep coming in and interacting with. And it's all sort of part of the setup to try and stop you having an abortion. So I can't imagine like what you'd feel like if you were actually in there, trying to find help. And like, I felt sort of nervous and um, you know, kind of quite quite sort of frustrated and mm. upset really being in there, even knowing that I wasn't trying to get an abortion, but just thinking about what someone would be going through if they were and in that situation. intimidated, I imagine. Yeah, That's very intimidating. intimidating experience. Very intimidating. And mad, because it's not like, you know, it's going to be hard for you to do anyway if it's illegal. Like in the States, obviously, I don't agree with it at all. But you can kind of see there's a, that, you know, they want to prevent the legal abortion taking place but it's not even like it's going to be easy for you to I don't know it feels like a very weird thing yeah to do in those circumstances I I mean having never actually had to make a decision about this I do feel like there are times in my life where the decision would have been clear but it doesn't mean it would have been easy and (laughs) I think that is lost somewhere Mm. in those in places like that yeah I think it is I think it really is coming from the the anti-choice side that they don't really think about the fact that people are having a really difficult decision to make and they're in a vulnerable situation I think they're just thinking that people are just you know going off for abortions willy-nilly whereas actually it's like a using it like birth control 
exactly, as if anyone yeah. does that. Yeah. yeah, it's so mad, isn't it? Because when we were in Ireland, we made a documentary about um, about the uh, referendum in Ireland. And uh, when we were there, and the and the the sense that like, well, if we legalise abortion, people will just go nuts. They'll just go, they'll just go yeah. wild for abortions. Like no one wants yeah. to have an abortion. Like, yeah. all, like almost yeah. like people would say, yeah. I actually want this baby, but because I can have an abortion, like you take it yeah. up like it was a roller coaster trip or something. Yeah. It's yeah. Just, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. It really is. Going back to those figures, thirty-eight, thirty-one. You said mm-hmm. now that doesn't seem hopeless, does no. it? No, and we're hoping. I mean, going to that that march in the streets during the when the vote was happening there were so many people out there fighting for pro-choice and it was pouring with rain and it's well known that in Argentina people do not go out in the rain especially (laughs) in Buenos Aires it's just like it rains everyone's like oh I can't go it's and literally it was just a sea of umbrellas in the street and people like cheering and singing and really sort of passionate about trying to change things so I do think that yeah hopefully with some more sort of awareness and especially around the world and presence from around the world and putting pressure on the Senate um, hopefully in the next year or so it will change now, one of the ways that maybe we can help is yourself and Andrew, your co-creator, have done this for no fee, haven't you? Um, yeah. And this is basically being made for virtually no money whatsoever. It's really impressive you've got it made. So you are actually crowdfunding a release yeah. for this, aren't you? How can people, if they're interested in actually watching it, maybe yeah. contribute something towards that? Yeah, so we've entirely self-funded it. We worked with a really small crew of people, just three others that worked on it with us, and we've managed to get it to a stage where we've got a first cut done. Now we're doing a crowdfunder to just try and finish it with regards to all the legal rights, the music rights, finish the edit and the audio. And we've got a page on Indiegogo. It's My Body, Their Choice. So if you Google that, it's probably the best way because the link's a bit long-winded. We've also got an Instagram page, which is at My Body, Their Choice, and a Twitter page as well. And a Facebook page. The smallest amount all helps because it all adds up. So if anyone can donate any money whatsoever or just share the links, share the page, pass it on to friends who might be interested, that would all help us get this film finished and get the story out there. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks a lot. Hello, sorry to interrupt, but just wanted to let you know quickly that we've got a few other bits and pieces for you to look out for this week. Coming up on Friday, you will get another instalment of Outside the Box from Hannah Dunleavy in order to help you plan for your weekend and what you should be watching if you happen to be staying in. I get to drop an absolute shit ton of incongruous grime references, except they're not incongruous because I'm talking about Top Boy and Hannah and Mickey talk about all sorts of like much more highbrow things like the very good Unbelievable on Netflix. Anyway, keep your ears peeled for that. Also on Sunday, we have the Sunday Chops, as ever, in which I am talking to the legend of young adult fiction, Mallory Blackman, who was an absolute joy to speak to, and I hope that you will all tune in for that as well, because she's just she's just fucking lovely, frankly. As ever, if you want to make sure you don't miss any of that golden content... Yes, guys, golden. Just hit subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and there it will be before your ears. Please do. It's very helpful if you subscribe. We like that a lot. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and I hope you enjoy what is left to come over the course of this week. Hello, I am joined by author Liz Hyder, here to chat to me about her, spoiler, fucking brilliant debut novel, Bearmouth. Is it Bearmouth? Yeah. Or Bearmouth? 
Bear mouth, I Bear would mouth. think. Yeah. Well, you should know. <laughs> this is true. It's the name of a real mine up in kind of the Whitehaven district in uh, okay. Longshot. Because I wasn't sure, because Bearmouth makes more sense to me having read it, but Bearmouth could also be a pronunciation. Yeah, it could. I think of it as Bearmouth. I think we should go with that because it's your book. <laughs> Hello, Liz. Hello. <laughs> what an absolutely professional start to this interview. Yay. I'm going to put all my cards on the table. Dear listeners, I love this book. It is so good. Thanks. I'm really trying not to dance, which is quite difficult in a chair. So let's start from the beginning. Where did the idea for Bearmouth come from? I get angry quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I get angry about all sorts of things. Injustice really makes me cross. I went to North Wales on on holiday and I was going to go for a nice hike because I like like a nice long walk. (laughs) And and it was raining, so that was the walk called off. And I went down a slate mine and it was really low key it's basically like here's a hard hat here's a torch mind your head on the way in good luck yeah like there's no like fancy light displays there's no guide there's nothing there's just you venturing down into the dark wow yeah so it's really atmospheric it's amazing down there there was no one else down there (laughs) i wonder why (laughs) did you lick it no i did stroke it though because it's quite because it's a slate mine so it's different from a coal mine but you get um interesting mosses and it's quite a tactile environment I have to explain the reason I asked whether you licked it is because when Hannah went down a slate mine, she licked the wall. Okay. No? Okay. Just needed to clarify. Yeah, I've never felt tempted to lick a wall in a mine. No. Carry on with your much more interesting story about... (laughs) Well, no, it's just that I went down there and I found out that the boys who used to work down there, they had their right nostril slit on their first day at work to prove they were, like, man enough to work down the mine. And these are boys of 12. That really shocked me and really upset me. They worked very long hours, obviously, but they had a um, an old stretcher there, and it's basically a, it's a coffin without a lid, which kind of makes sense if you think someone gets injured underground. You don't want their arms falling off stretchers and stuff. But there's a brutality in that as well. That, it, that really shocked me as well. And then on the way in and out of the mine, there's sort of a big stone figure in the rock that the workers used to doff their caps to okay. as they came in and out every day. And I just thought, this feels like a cult. It kind of, there's something weird about that environment it just felt like a cult and at the time zero hours contracts in the news and I was just getting really cross about exploitation and about how it's kind of been rebranded as opportunity and people have slightly fallen for it yeah that it's like oh you know it's great zero hours contracts are really flexible and you're like but you have no rights <laughs> and you get no holiday and it's actually really terrible it just got me thinking basically my anger got me thinking when I came out of the mine so that's where it started Amazing. So your protagonist, Newt Coombs, is still what is referred to as a young, but has been living and working in the Bearmouth coal mine from a very, very tender age, doesn't really know anything else. And that is the starting point. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's going on down pit? It's such an oppressive atmosphere. So I did a lot of research into Victorian mines. Children as young as four worked down there and they'd work 12 hour days, six days a week, and they'd have to walk to and from work. And they would have quite responsible jobs. So if you were four, you'd probably be a trapper, which means that you open and shut the doors to the mine. So it's to regulate the airflow. And they now there's kind of a bit of a school of thought that thinks that a lot of the explosions that happened in that time period were because children fell asleep on the job. I mean, they were knackered. Because they were absolutely knackered. And if you read their first-hand accounts, which anyone kind of can, like if you read the first-hand accounts from sort of kids at that time, they were so tired they couldn't even play a game of football on a, a on a Sunday. They fell asleep into their food, like literally like face 
down into the feed. They were very poorly educated. They were stunted. They were they were bald. Sometimes they had to carry things like dragging things on their heads. I mean, it's just it is horrendous. The twist that I've kind of done, like Bearmouth is not a Victorian mine. It's kind of a Victorian esque kind of mine. Yeah. The twist that I did was like the pit ponies was that they lived down there as well. Yeah. That's the kind of crucial thing that it's expensive for them because they have to pay for everything, which they kind of did in real life. They didn't have to pay to go up and down the mine shaft, which they do in Bearmouth, which is why it's cheaper for them to stay there. But yeah, it was it's brutal, and I don't think we talk enough about it. I don't think enough people know about that that world and that environment. And I think good lessons from history. You know, be careful that we don't repeat that. <laughs> yeah, totally. What happens to Newt is that the character starts to come of age. Mm. And changes start happening to Newt, but also within the pit. Can you tell us like a sort of spoiler free <laughs> scenario of what, what happens? Yeah, I mean, the idea is the, it's not a, it's not a spoiler because it sort of says on the, on the front, it takes one person to start a revolution. And one of the reasons that I wrote Bearmouth was to sort of show the importance of asking questions. It's really important, like in, in our, our age now, like the era of fake news, that we ask who's, who is saying this and why are they saying it and what do they hope to get out of it. And what happens with New is that a new boy comes to the mine, a young man called Devlin, who lives in their dorm and works in kind of the, the, the team that Newt's part of. And Devlin is an outsider and he's quite fiery and he, he kind of encourages Newt to start asking questions and it sort of sets off a chain of events that threatens to destroy their entire world it's all about knocking down systems rising up and the power of solidarity not just for good which yeah. is what can happen but also for bad where they they are in this like you describe it a cult yeah. tipping their hat to a maker that they've been told exists so you're talking about religion and society yeah. they're pretty big topics because it's worth pointing out that bear mouth is actually a young adult fiction now as a 42 year old I was gripped and it's such a page turner and I loved it so much but you've tackled some really dark themes in there and there is loads of death and violence yeah did you always want to write for the young adult market um I mean it's interesting with young adult because I've kind of worked as a publicist in publishing and I've worked with a lot of young adult authors and I read a lot of young adult books anyway I just I I think a, a lot of the most interesting storytellers are writing for young adults at the moment and writing for children you can't fool them like it's got to be page turning like yeah. you've got to crack on with that pace because otherwise they'll just get bored and that's the end of your book you know but with Bearmouth Newt was always going to be kind of that main character Newt is learning to read and write in the book so has a very sort of distinctive dialect really and that voice was kind of in my head quite early on do you think like the young adult market are more open to these ideas of standing up for themselves yes Definitely. Young people ask questions all the time, right? right? And it's something that I think we forget to do sometimes when we get older. That like everyone kind of goes, "Oh no, you know, like oh my my toddler's asking questions again. Like why? Who says? Like that kind of challenging authority is really important. And I think when you look at someone like Greta Thunberg, who is just extraordinary, yeah, you know, it's really important to keep asking questions, and it's it's important to keep questioning authority, and it's important to keep questioning the status quo as well. It doesn't mean necessarily that you can change it, but by questioning it, you become better informed yourself, and other people become better informed. And I think that is only ever going to be a good thing. I agree. My little rant. <laughs> now you mentioned there that Newt is being taught to read and write by mm. his friend and protector Thomas, who is a lovely character, Aww. and so. The writing improves as Newt's learning carries on. Where did the idea of doing that come from? Because it very much feels like you had a lot of fun with it. It was a nightmare to prove. <laughs> yeah, well... I must name-check Rory at Pushkin Press. He was a demon on it. Like, I had to do a little guide of when you learn certain words, learns to spell certain words correctly or nearly correctly, or 
oh man it was yeah it's like about <laughs> 10 pages long and there are some words that Newt only writes down like once in the book and then it's like oh how how would Newt spell that but it wrecked my spelling so it's like when I was writing it and then I'd get an email and I'd have to reply to an email and I I just I couldn't I just replying as I Newt just, yeah I was replying as <laughs> new like all these spelling mistakes of it. it was so much fun to write it was fun to write. It was hard. It was. It's hard to write because I put them through a really difficult time, and I think, you know, as a writer, you're imagining it, but you go on that journey with them. And yeah, I I cried a lot when I wrote it. It's incredibly <laughs> emotional. It's incredibly emotional because I think, as you touched on earlier, the fact is, it is. It's a, this dystopian set in no time at all, no specific time. But you've clearly taking stuff straight out of the history books. So knowing that these kids, I'm from a northern mill town, you know, knowing that these kids were at danger every single day from such a tiny age, yeah, it, I think it really rings true in your book. It really comes across. It's raw. Like, mm. I couldn't believe... I, like, I, I remember, like, as a kid, like, at school, finding out, like, obviously, the children that worked in, the, um, in, like, the cotton mills and stuff and children worked as chimney sweepers and, like... And, and I knew that kids worked down the mines. I hadn't realised how young they were or how responsible the job was and how demanding and tough that job was and the hours. And it's just, it's extraordinary. Like, it is the most awful, awful, awful thing. And I don't think enough people know about it. And I think it's part of our heritage that we kind of need to talk about in the same way that I think we beginning to get better in this country about talking about empire and the kind of the, the kind of the effects that the empire had slavery and the legacy that that still has that's with us today mm-hmm. and i think we also need to talk about this about kind of the exploitation that happened you know here underground in in this country and it's really bad i think when people talk about mining they think about like the miner strikes and they think about the 70s and they yeah. think about the 80s and they think about kind of the end of mining in this in this country but not they the brutality for, of it. They forget all that earlier stuff, which is, yeah, horrendous. The, the, the young... I've found a record of a baby being killed down on mine. Yeah, they just record the ages, and the age, it just says zero. Women would often take... When the women were, um, were still working down the mine, so before 1842, basically, um, when the law was changed, so women and girls were banned from mines in 1842, and boys had to be 10. Still ten. I mean, come I mean, on! Like it's like it's an improvement, but adults. it's an improvement. But it's still yeah. But women, women gave birth down there, and it's extraordinary to think that kind of as a baby, your first breath is in that environment. Yeah, is in a dark, damp underground environment that is dusty and dangerous, and it's crazy. It's awful. <sighs> cheery note. <laughs> Let's talk about something a little more cheery, which is. This is your debut novel, but it's getting so much attention already. I am, like, super chuffed. Another little caveat to the listeners, because Liz and I have dealt with each other for press reasons over the years, we've become internet friends. <laughs> and I was just so pleased that this brilliant book is getting so much love. But is there, like, little talk about a film and stuff? Oh, thanks. Yeah. I don't know what I'm allowed to say, because it's not, it's not official yet. It's not official yet. It's not official yet. But, um, yeah, I've... I've I'm in the process of selling the film rights. That is so exciting. I think it's a hard book to film. But at the same time, it's very filmic. Yeah, I think it, yeah. So, like, you need to have a vision. Yeah, and the the people who are, I can't talk about it. It's so exciting. (laughs) It's so cool. And even at the time of speaking, we're chatting on September the 9th. It's not even out yet. No, I know. (laughs) It's weird to see finished copies of it. That is the weird thing. Where like everyone was like, oh, when you pick up your first book and it arrives and it's like an object and it's really amazing. 
the thing for me was opening it and I, I, I literally was like, oh my God, this, Jesus, this words that I wrote inside this thing. <laughs> That was the weird thing. It wasn't like the cover. I mean, it is be- they've done a beautiful job on I the mean, cover. It's and it's got sexy red sprayed edges. It's a very sexy it's... book. So what's next? <gasps> what's next is a book for... I can't say a book for adults because it makes... I always think book for adults sounds a bit like... Mm, you write some saucy stuff. Fifty Shades. Um, but like a book Fifty for... Shades of Coal Mine. <laughs> Fifty mm. Shades of Coal Mine. Yeah, the next one is definitely Victorian. The next one, Bermouth Victorian-esque. The next one is 1840... London and bits of Shropshire where I now live and a few other kind of little places but yeah it's really it's a it's a book it's very much about women and it's very much about women's place in society and it's about those women who don't get written about it's about the women who are just trying to push open that door so before the people actually push it open it's those ones who are nudge nudge nudging just to try and get it open so I've got four main female characters in it. There's a botanist, an artist, an aspiring writer, journalist, really, and a storyteller. And the first thing that happened, can I tell you the first thing that yeah, happened? Yeah, first scene. Ah. So it's in Shropshire and it's all, it's all set in a mu- like under a month. It's set like three and a half weeks in October in 1840. The opening scene is a woman through the, in the woods who's clearly like struggling. There's something is happening to her. So it's like something very physical is happening to her. Um, like she's really ill and she sort of stumbles between the trees as the leaves are kind of falling down around her and she grows wings. (gasps) (laughs) Are you a fan of Angela Carter? Yes. Yes. I mean, it's a book about women. Who's going to want to read that, Liz? (laughs) (laughs) Me, I'm going to want to read it. Bearmouth is is very intense and very claustrophobic and it's more like a, a fable in a way. Whereas book two is kind of like mm, epic <laughs> and big and sprawling and there's Victorian London and there's all the smells and sounds. And I did so much research and it was so, so much fun. One of my main male characters is a, a surgeon. Early Victorian surgery before painkillers or anaesthesia or like anything. It's just like, <laughs> The old operating theatre in London is amazing, which is next to London Bridge, which is fantastic. And not far from me, there's a place called the Judge's Lodging, which um, is a sort of Victorian... It's, it's the old courthouse, basically. So you've got the the old... I mean, it's just like... It's a film set. You kind of go in and go, what, what's this doing here in this tiny little town, tiny little rural town of Prestine? And it's amazing. So the house, one of the kind of key locations in it is... I just nicked it. Just stole it. <laughs> Judge, the judge's lodging will never know. <laughs> They'll be fine with that. It's a compliment, right? Yeah, totally. Uh, Thackeray Medical Museum. Ooh. Very exciting. It's well worth a day trip. Oh, I'm going up to Ilkley soon, so I might nip over totally. and see if I can go. It's so much fun and so fascinating and like also horrific. <laughs> but kind of, it's fun though, right? Like there's yeah. a guy. There was a guy, there's a famous story, I think it's Robert Liston, and he had a 300% death rate in one operation. So he was amputating someone's leg. Hang on. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> Carry on. He was f- famed for being the fastest person to do it. Not the best. No, one, right. that, one, I mean, that's not what I'm looking one, for with no, surgery, no. right? Speed. Like, I want I want the best, right? I mean, speed was important because of blood loss and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it's not yeah. the most important. So he was known to have chopped off, you know, other bits of men as he chopped off their leg. Yep, like, yeah, oh, I've just sliced the top of the testes off. But um, So he amputated the leg and the guy died the next day of, <laughs> of shock. He cut off two fingers of his assistant he chopped off the two two fingers and that person then got <laughs> got sepsis and died and a bit of his blade i think i'm trying to remember the story completely but a bit of his blade flew off and hit someone in the audience which didn't hurt them but they had a heart attack and died <laughs> so in one operation one leg he managed to kill three people which i just think is that to me sums up kind of early victorian surgery it's brilliant 
Oh my god! But also her- horrific. But it's, I mean, you've got to laugh at that. I think that dark sense of humour that Liz has just revealed is a very good indicator as to why you should read their mouth because for, for all its claustrophobia and it is incredibly intense and really emotional, it made me laugh, it made me cry, it's so good. Where can people find out more about Bear Mouth and about you? I've got a new Wizzy website actually. Um, so yeah, it's just lizhider.co.uk. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Pushkin Press, who are publishing it, they've got some stuff on their website. And yeah, it'll be available in Waterstones are stocking it, Foils are stocking it. All it's available online. Shops. All good but all good bookshops. Liz, thank you so much for coming in to talk to me. You're very welcome. It's been brilliant. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we sashay around an empty arena on a lap of honour as we discuss all things women's sport. To start off with, I am not really into the Americanness of the US women's soccer team. No offence, Americans. So I didn't go as wild for Megan Rapinoe as a lot of other people did during the Women's World Cup this summer. But fair play to Rapinoe because last week she won the Women's Player of the Year at the Best FIFA Football Awards. Personally, if the choice was down to me, I might have gone for a player who did well in the tournament as well as in their domestic league etc etc but I mean to be fair I am enormously biased but I might have gone with I don't know for example Lucy Bronze who plays for England but also won the Champions League domestic league and Coupe de France with her team Lyon last year so I mean you might argue that Rapinoe's win is a bit political but look I don't want to be a twat about it because she is also very good and she did win it but also she made a very good speech I thought about basically being the change you want to see in the game So, in her acceptance speech, she challenged the professional footballers at the ceremony to use their global platform to influence others and back each other up. Wouldn't it be good, she said, if players other than Raheem Sterling and Kaladu Koulibaly were also outraged by racism in the game? How about if not just LGBTQ players were fucked off about homophobia? What about if it wasn't just women who were irked by the lack of investment and equal pay in the women's game? That would be the most inspiring thing to me, she said. And the world of football sort of looked at her blankly um, in in response to that, which is uh, heartwarming to see. I mean, bearing in mind, Manchester United's Juan Mata started a foundation a few years back, Common Goal, it was called, which he asked professional footballers to pledge 1% of their salaries to charitable deeds through the foundation. And not one of his Manchester United teammates joined. Not one. In fact, only five Premier League players have actually signed up and only one of those is from the top four teams. And an overwhelming number of those signed up to it are women, in fact. Anyway, as always, I digress. But as I said, I am not a Megan Rapinoe fangirl by any stretch of the imagination. And I do hear people saying this kind of stuff a lot of the time. And I do think it's a bit of a lazy rhetoric to say footballers are just greedy spoiled fuck sticks but in this case yep i agree i agree with megan rapino do better football now let's talk about the world athletics championships because that's happening not that you fucking know about it mind you as approximately four people turned up to watch them out in doha the iaaf that's the international athletics governing body by the way said that it was disappointed by the small crowds but athletes were enjoying a positive experience nonetheless 
And if you don't know what that's about, basically, well, I mean, it's just been empty. There's hardly anyone gone to watch it, which is a real shame. BBC pundit Denise Lewis says, now, nah, mate, the athletes deserve better and I can't help but agree with her. But let's talk about the athletes. Specifically, let's talk about Dina Asher-Smith, who became the first British woman in 36 years to win an individual World Championship sprint medal as she took home silver in the 100-metre final, losing out to Shelley-Anne Fraser-Price, who took her eighth world title. Now, fair play to both of them. Asher Smith, however, already Britain's fastest woman, set a new British record of 10.83 seconds, and that is pretty fast. On Monday, she also led her heat in the 200 metres to reach the semi-finals on Tuesday, which is today, by the way, so I don't know the outcome of that. So obviously, I mean, I have some thoughts. Um, I'll stay tight-lipped on that because I am the sporting kiss of death anyway she's also joined by compatriots jodie williams and beth dobbin in the semi-finals so hopefully that will go well that's all from me this week please do give me a shout on twitter if you have thoughts opinions etc i am at inspire jen and i'll be back next week with more sports things for you but until then goodbye <laughs> Welcome to Dunleavy Does Dystopia. Dunleavy, what vision of a future hell did we watch this week? This week we watched another Paul Verhoeven film. I mean, I don't know what's happening. That's two in a row. I mean, should we watch Showgirls next week? <laughs> yes, no. please. No. No. We watched Total Recall, which is 1990 and based on a... I was going to say like all great dystopias, but I'm yet to be convinced this is a great dystopia. But it's based on a Philip K. Dick story which is called We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. It stars now, I think, our leading perpetual man of the future, Honor Schwarzenegger, um, yes. and some <laughs> other people, including Sharon Stone, quite briefly. Lots of people that I don't really know who they are, but I think some of them were actually in Robocop as well. And then also Rachel Tick-Otin, I think that's how it's pronounced, who is probably the only other thing she's famous for is that she's in... The greatest film ever. Did you recognise her from the greatest film ever? What's the greatest film no. ever? Con Air. Oh, oh, who is she in Con Air? She's the the copper that that gets held hostage. That they that's on their plane. She's the woman. There is our woman in Con Air. Ah, she is she's the, the woman. woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't. I didn't even know there was a woman in Con Air. Yeah, there are, you haven't watched it. Apart from Nick Cage's missus, she's yeah. You know, see? She's the one that Danny Trejo keeps saying he's going to attack her, and then he doesn't, obviously, because he has his arm ripped off. Um, oh, thank God that didn't happen in real life. Crash, Who would yeah. rescue babies from under trucks? Yeah, I know. <laughs> anyway, I we know. digress slightly. Yeah, we do. Let's go back to Total Recall. When are we? Um, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. The future. Yeah. The future. I mean, it's difficult to tell because it looks mm, pretty much the same now as it did, uh, you know, then. But that said, certain parts of technology are obviously more advanced. So I don't know. Do anyone have any guess of when it might be? Well, it seems a long way off with the yeah. colonising Mars kind of stuff. So. 2200. Yeah, but I would have thought that the Earth would have moved on a bit more since then, but who knows? Yeah, that's the 90s for you, though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think Jen's right. Like, it wouldn't, I, I think 2000 wouldn't have been futuristic enough no. for them. 
So add a couple of hundred years yeah. to that. Um, yeah, to get to Mars. I've never even been to Mars. Mm. Um, apparently it was one of the most expensive films ever made mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. Gosh. Um, and you can really tell dollars? from those quality special effects. Did everybody watch it? I have watched... So I did not re-watch it for the purpose of this because for reasons that I really don't have, like, I, I just don't know what they are. I've actually watched this quite recently. <laughs> and I don't know why. I can't remember the circumstances under which this happened because it is not something I would ever choose to watch. But I have seen it recently, yes. I didn't get a chance to rewatch it, but I have seen it so many times yeah. and also pretty recently on the cinema screen. So, yeah, I felt like I was qualified to chat about Total Recall um, with my hazy rose-coloured glasses on. <laughs> well, I can give you a quick plot summary if you haven't either seen it recently inexplicably like Mick has or even more inexplicably like Jen has (laughs) there's a man he's played by Arnold Schwarzenegger Quaid he is called Quaid yes he has a wife who's played by Sharon Stone they wake up in the morning and shag that's the kind of happy relationship they're in Sharon Stone theme and he decides that he's going to go and have um his memory fucked with, essentially, by this company which is offering you to have experiences that you haven't had by messing around with your memory. But unfortunately, when this happens, it sparks something else in him because clearly he's had his memory wiped on a previous occasion. And we have to go to Mars in order to solve the mystery. And the biggest mystery of this film remains at the end of it is why Martians would build a machine that makes oxygen. Don't need it. I don't well, there's no proof that they do. That's, yeah, that's what I mean. They don't yeah. need it, so why would they? Good point, Hannah. Uh, I have a question though. Have humans built machines that we don't need? I think the answer is yeah, shit tons, right? Like. Do you think they're just experimenting? What machines have we built that we don't need? Uh smartphones, don't need them. Got by without them. Yeah, but you can see you can see the, you value, can see in the value in them. Whereas, like oxygen, if you actually just don't, that might you even have kill no you. purpose for it. Maybe they really like like they've seen some plants on telly and they really want to like start Fair. a greenhouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the yeah, yeah, a better idea than I had because I really couldn't work it out at all. <laughs> like we're sick of, sick of being the red planet. We want to be um. the green planet. <laughs> So, I mean, the, the, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of plot, but all of it ultimately <laughs> just builds to this idea that it turns out that he's not um, who he thinks he is. He's another guy who is a brave freedom fighter, or is he? Because it's, you've got, there's some rather excellent plot twists in this that are signposted really brilliantly. In that there's, this has got more rug pulls than I think, like uh, a, just, like a Gary Delaney pull. set. It's yeah. just like rug pull, rug pull, rug pull, rug pull. And it's very silly. But then again, Robocop had a load of rug pulls, didn't it? It feels like Verhoeven's gone, ah, Robocop was an incredible success. Now, my amp only says it goes up to 10. Uh, but I think I can crank it up to 11 yeah. or maybe even 17. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, we we might as well not talk about the plot unless we're just going to pick holes in how completely silly it is. The really silly bit at the end with the Martians, though, isn't in the book. It's just tagged on to make it a three-act play for a telly. Right, okay. A telly. Well, that, that, would, that, would, that would make sense. I mean, 
I'm going to say, I think we might start off with the with the Cassandra stuff, because actually, silly though this film is, there's actually quite a lot of stuff in here that I feel actually isn't that far away, which is weird. Like, Sharon Stone has this hologram thing that she does her exercises to, which is kind of a Nintendo way. Yeah, yeah. or VR. I mean, I'm glad you went there. I was worried you were going to start unbuttoning your shirt. Uh, <laughs> it was just going to be a tiny Hannah yeah. in your tummy. Oh, please, that's disgusting. But, okay. Uh, also, um, technology is advanced enough in this that they have, uh, you know, communication in cars. Taxis, by the way, kind of resemble Ubers, weirdly. Um, but anyway, um, and there's a bit in it where he's talking to his boss and his boss is telling him to do something. And he and he says, oh, no, I'm losing you. I'm losing you. And, like, makes it up that he can't hear him, which actually predicts I'm going into a tunnel <laughs> by about, by about 20 cheap. years or at least 10 years. But, yes, a lot of it is completely silly. And the thing that I was most fascinated by is when he was told to wrap a towel around his head. Like, he went into a room and he came back and he wrapped a towel around his head. I've been wrapping a towel around my head for years, you know, to wash my hair. I don't even know how he did that. It's like he just put it up and it went round and it was... Jen's looking slightly it's baffled, like It was more like we? a towel hat. Yeah, it was. A towel hat. I can't picture this, to yeah. be honest. You can buy towel turbans, though. Yeah, you can, yeah. Yeah. Oh, is it like that, you mean? Like a, yeah. Like a turban, basically. Yeah, he ma- but he makes it with yeah. a towel in about 20 seconds. Arnold Schwarzenegger does not know how to do that. You want you want a montage where you just see him working for years at like resort hotels making swans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it's really silly. There's a couple of bits of his exposition. Like there's a bit in it where he finds a bit of handwriting because obviously he finds a message from from him, for himself in the past. And and then there's also something that's handwritten and he writes something down in order to check that it's his own handwriting. Uh, I think that is something Arnold Schwarzenegger would do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe, but that really made me laugh, because I was like, (laughs) the need for exposition was there, but they couldn't think of a better way of doing it. That's quite clever. (laughs) Hang on a minute, was this me? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Would you have to check your own handwriting, Jen? No, that's a good point. (laughs) There's also um, a, a great thing about... Cohagen, who's the the bad guy in it, he's the guy who's basically the mayor of Mars, essentially. And every time he appears in a video, he looks backwards over his shoulder, like he's in uh, he's in like a motivational speaker or a perfume advert. Yeah. It's just like hi. So I've gone away from the microphone doing that. That made me laugh a lot. It's very funny, but because it's silly, it's very very funny. Yeah, I mean it's ridiculously silly. What I really like is that we may be struggling on Earth, but the print media is positively thriving on Mars, <laughs> which is is something to be said. We could talk about women. I mean, Sharon Stone basically is all about the shagging in it. Uh, surprise, surprise. And Rachel, she's devious. She's a tit- she's a snake with tits. She is. Uh, Rachel. Um, Ticket in. She she is one of those terrible female characters that prioritizes her failings rather than her personal safety. So you know, every time they're running away for something, she wants to chat about their relationship and goes, "No, I'm not coming with you until you discuss this with me." So you tell me whether or not you're my boyfriend. Yeah. Whereas you're like, I always think, if you're both alive at the end of it, then have the chat. She'd clearly not seen Running Man, where she would have got, Mm, she'd have got, she may have learned some lessons. Absolutely. Uh, the other women, so... There's one with the, three boobs. Uh, I've got a, this written down here, three tits, question mark. <laughs> um, What's the question? Well, the question mark is, it's like, 
it's all to do with like the quality of air they're getting. And I can't imagine what quality of air would cause you to have a cause third you to tip. any have, well any frankly any of those uh, mutations that they have. But the third tip in particular is. I mean, boobs are great, so maybe it's like really good quality of yeah. air. <laughs> Have another one. An extra boob. Why not? But then the dwarf sex worker? I mean, is that supposed to be another sort of mutation? The machine gun toting, like who's mates with three-titted Marjorie? I don't I know. It's very, it's very, very odd um, in that that's, that's what they think. And I, I mean, I've written down Brexit analogy here. I don't think I'm even going to go into it. It's, I see that everywhere now. Literally everything... I see, read, or whatever, I go, oh, it's just like Brexit. The three but, tits, specifically? No, 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 I just, just this whole thing. Okay. But, you know, about how the poor people are being sold a lie and mm. by the wealthy people. No one knows what reality is anymore. No. And the Martians are creating oxygen. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Like, yeah. we're waiting for our alien overlords. It could well be the best Brexit analogy so far. Well, there's a War of the Worlds coming out, as I was discussing this on... Um, <laughs> um, it's got, got Rafe Spall in it. Um, uh, and it's coming out, as I was discussing it on Strong Female Leads, which I'm on, I thought I should mention, um, this week. And I was like, to be honest, when they wrote War of the Worlds, you know, and for many, many years, it's been, you know, on based on the idea that if aliens came, we'd be terrified. And I think if aliens came quite... Frankly, I'd be relieved at the moment. <laughs> Running towards the, yeah. the red hot laser beam to get. You yeah. see adverts for like a version of War of the Worlds at the O2 with like the voice of Liam Neeson as something or other, and I always think, who would go to that? It's really, Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. It's incredibly popular. Yeah, yeah. We used to listen to it. I love it. I was listening yeah. to it the other day. Da, 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 da. The chances of anything coming from Mars are to go to the one. They say. The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one, and still they war. We're not cutting any of this, are we? No, no. I'm (laughs) going to go into Forever Autumn in a minute. I'm scared. Have you never listened to War of the Worlds? I know the the one. Obviously, I think I've seen some fireworks. Uh, set to that music in Battersea Park. What a time to be alive. Uh, yeah, I just wonder who, who would go to it, but apparently well, now we know. Two thirds of this room. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've got a couple of things written down in my notebook here that made me laugh. Uh, the reference to the old cement factory, <laughs> which just <laughs> makes me laugh because these these kind of dystopian films what they need is some large industrial unit in which the final fight or whatever can take place in. Mm-hmm. Also, his um, message to himself that he leaves about removing the bug from his head. And let's talk about the size of that bug, Ooh. for fuck's sake. It's, um, uh, I mean, the only other thing that's less believable is when they shoot a rat and the whole place gets sprayed in blood. I don't think rats have that much blood. But anyway, he, the message that he gives to himself, which made me laugh for absolutely ages, is don't worry, it's self-guiding. Just shove it up there really hard. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> And let's talk about the special effects, which are possibly were good at the time, but are, you know, absolutely fucking appalling. But hilarious. I mean, when they go out, when they get dumped out into Mars and they are slowly dying by their mm. eyes popping out. And oh, I don't like that. Throats. No, I don't like that. It reminds me of uh, I mean, it's Christopher horrible. Lloyd and Roger Rabbit. It's horrible, but it's also deeply, deeply unbelievable. 
um, because I'm pretty sure they'd have been dead about five minutes into the uh, thing. Oh, my God, are we doing a reality test of how long people would survive? No, 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 no. But, I mean, it's just ridiculous because it it clearly, it it just goes on for so long that they are really enjoying the special effects, but the special effects are ridiculous. It's a good, like, nine minutes or something ridiculous of them just their eyes getting bulgy. Do you remember when people used to make sweets, which are kind of, it's be kind, please rewind type remakes. They're called sweets. Like a vegetable. Like a vegetable. And they make a Swede version. So it's basically they just do it with like stuff that they found on their house and tinfoil and stuff. And they make a version of a film like Jack Black's Be Kind, Please Rewind. Anyway, there was a brilliant one of Total Recall done by the in-betweeners James Buckley. And it is hilarious. And the effects are almost as good as the actual (laughs) Total Recall. (laughs) It's so good. But the eye bulging bit in that is particularly lovely. I would suggest everyone, if you can't be bothered to spend two hours watching Total Recall, just watch that. And I suggest you don't. Oh, to be honest. Oh, I would disagree with Jen. Has everyone done Leave you No, I don't like it. I agree with Jen. Thanks I don't like that. it. Shall we I score it? I don't like it. I don't like it. I mean, there's a clever idea about memory, but to be honest, if you want to watch something about about fucking with your memory, I would watch Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, oh, yeah. which is a much, much, much better film, if but not a dystopia. Mm. And Memento. Yes. With Guy Pearce. That's very good. Okay, how many Arnie's are you giving it? Let's start with... I've never even been to Mars, because I like saying it. Uh-huh. Is it as in, is it a good film? Yes. No. I think I have become the teenage boy of this group, because I'm like, like, it's a great film. A random dystopia. Because they're hilarious, even though if they're not meant to be, they're so no, funny. You, not... yeah, but I think and the so gross and yeah. the outweighed it in this yeah. for me. I like that. I mean, I, don't get me wrong, I fucking love The Running Man, but that this is just like, it's just Paul Verhoeven, and I don't like him. Okay, well, the last time I saw... Total Recall was a double bill that started at midnight at Hyde Park Picture House in Leeds and I'd been drinking coffee for a long time to stay uh, stay awake and it was Robocop followed by Total Recall. That's a lot. I was off, like, I I was in a different sort of reality, guys. Yeah. But stand by it. Anyway, so how many are you giving it? One. Just one? Yeah. Wowzers. Mickey's faces. Sad face. Like the news wasn't making me sad enough. Now this news. Heartbreaking scenes. And what about um, Governor of California? Well, is it an accurate representation of the future? Like I said, I think it's (laughs) not a bit... I think it's it's actually, in in funny little ways, it's actually been a lot more successful than most in that, you know? Um, Interesting. Yeah. Like I say, it predicts us lying that we have no signal. It predicts a Nintendo Wii. Um, that's enough for me. And I'm, really big rats. Yeah, and rats that have enough blood to um, fill a room. Yeah, so maybe three. Okay. So sad. Oh, what Nick. are we going to watch next time? I don't know. I was thinking maybe we, we were running out of dystopias. So oh, okay. I, I did have a pitch for something else that we could do. Because, you know, we were doing dystopia because we were in very dystopian times. But now I wonder whether we should move on to another of my all-time favourite types of films. Is it one that doesn't have quite so much? Well, also, I was thinking that Jem would be happier with this. Is it Westerns? No, I was thinking thinking it was strangely fitting. I would never, Westerns would just be me being really boring and then just going, oh, just watch it, everyone. Plus, Westerns are epically long, Yeah, um, which is a big ask. 
So I was thinking that we could do disaster films. Oh, disaster oh, yeah. movies. No, I'm into that. I like yeah. that. Yeah, because feel... I was I have been pretty much like full on obsessed by them since I saw the Poseidon Adventure when I was about five and closely followed by the other great one, which is The Towering Inferno. Does Connor gonna... count? Sorry. It's not a disaster movie. It's not a disaster movie. But uh, on a similar bent, are they all going to be serious because Airplane? <laughs> no, I mean, Airplane could, could do yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I think we're on board. Yeah. Not on airplane because it ends no. badly. But um, where are we going to start? Are we starting next week? Yeah, should we start next week? All right. We probably have missed out a classic dystopia that we should have watched. You know, The Handmaid's Tale, for example. But um, we're, we're currently that. living it anyway. Yeah, and we've so. currently uh, we've covered it quite substantially in TV the news. and <laughs> the news. Um, yeah. What are we starting with? Well, should we start with The Poseidon Adventure? Okay. The 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 original one, the Shelley Winters one, the Gene Hackman one, rather than the um, the new one. Okay, I've never seen it. Have you not? No. Oh, you're in for an absolute treat. Well, you're never at home on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. <laughs> 